that the cross, and all it signifies, Jesus incarnate God dying for us, is the magnum opus, or if you will, the most important revelation of God in action form. I don't think there's a more important revelation of God in action form than what the cross tells us about God. And I believe that chapters 14 and 15 of Luke's gospel are the magnum opus of the revelation of God in word form. I think these two chapters are are just that, just what I said, the, the most important revelation of God we have in word form. Now, the culmination of this is obviously chapter 15, which ends with the parable of the lost sons, prodigal son, it's often known as. And we've explored the prodigal son in depth here at camp. When Scott McKnight writes about this portion of scripture, he says, it is Jesus' vision of the kingdom. And to follow Jesus into this God who is loved God is to enter into the divine dance, where from time before time, God was indwelling God. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, one. Three in one. Indwelling and interpenetrating one another in the endless God dance of love and delight. This dance of love is who God was and is, and this is what God is like and what God will always be like. And that means that the only way to be connected to God is to love the God who has loved himself. I just love that. I, I think that is one of the most brilliant capturing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, that quote right there by Scott McKnight, I just I find it fascinating. So of course, the parables in chapter 15, it, it's just chapter 15 is the parable of lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. That gets most of the attention. Everyone knows those parables. Get that. However, it's important not to overlook the way Jesus sets up those parables in Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14 is context for chapter 15. And context is important when we read scripture. Very important. Chapter 14 establishes through parable and some very difficult sayings, a brilliant lens through which we then can capture the absolute glorious revelation of God we find in these lost parables, the sheep and the coin and the sons. But remember, context goes both ways. So in reality, Luke 15, the, con the parables of lost things, also create for us context in which to better understand what Kevin just read for us. These difficult sayings of chapter 14, as well as the parable of the great banquet. And it is this parable that, like I talked about when I introduced the opening song, we're going to start to explore this. This is going to be a three-week series. Today's just going to be an introduction to this parable. We're going to get some background information, some historical background information that's going to help us understand what's taking place in this parable. And the timing of this miniseries, this three-week miniseries, is very purposeful. I, I purposefully have put this here for two reasons. Number one, while it may be hyperbole, it seems to me anyway, and maybe to you, that we as a culture right now are more entrenched than ever in an us, them, a who's in, who's out, a good guys, bad guys paradigm than we have, I think, ever been. 
And so to consider God's kingdom and the way that works as a critique of our kingdom might be a very helpful, even if maybe uncomfortable, exercise for us to go through. So that's one reason we're looking at this parable. It speaks directly to this just hyper-us-them that we're in the middle of right now. But the second reason I'm, I'm, we're going to go through this is because we're coming off a summer series of learning about the life of Christ and how we are called as Christians to live like Christ. And we were realizing as we looked at it that this life can only be lived through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other way to do that. We need the gospel's the power for us to live like Jesus Christ. And we're about to start a series on Galatians, which is all about the power of that gospel to make us like Christ. So this mini-series, this three-week series, is a bridge for us between the summer series and we're going to move into the study of Galatians. Because apart from the cross... Like I said, this here, this parable we're about to explore, I believe is one of the most brilliant offerings of his gospel that Jesus Christ ever gave to us. In fact, in some ways, Paul's Galatians, comment, Paul's Galatians letter is a commentary on Luke 14 and Luke 15. So, let's, let's get into the introduction today, and then next week we'll get into the parable itself. The parable gets told, Jesus tells the parable in response to a very interesting statement made by one of the folks gathered around the table that the religious leaders where Jesus, of one of the religious leaders where Jesus had been invited to have a meal. So this guy blurts out, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he says that, and Jesus launches into this parable of the great banquet. Okay. Seems innocuous enough. It's one of these verses that without any background knowledge, it seems perfectly reasonable, though disjointed. It's like, well, he says this, and then Jesus tells this mysterious and strange parable in response to it. And maybe it's that fact that Jesus gives us such response that should alert us to the possibility that maybe this guy's seemingly innocent exclamation is not so innocent. And that's what I was sort of getting at when I was talking before I introduced the song, was when something is disjointed in the Gospels and is challenging us, let it. Let it. Let it sit. And don't try to figure it out. Let it be God challenging us to something bigger. That's what's happening here. And I think this is incredibly appropriate for us right now. So, let's first consider verse 1. Okay? He went to the house of one of the leaders, and they were watching him closely. So this line here, they were watching him closely. Bailey, the Middle Eastern scholar that I refer to a lot helps us understanding this by pointing out that it was very traditional in this society that the religious leaders would invite a traveling teacher passing through their village to dinner so they could investigate his political and theological views. Okay? And that's not abnormal. That's, that's even happened to me at times before. People, you know, check me out before they decide if they want to come to Cana or things like that. So he's, he's being watched closely and investigated theologically and politically. Well, he's already said some pretty disturbing things. So by the time this anonymous guy blurts out, blesses everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God, more than a few of the dinner guests and the religious leaders are already thinking, this Jesus guy is whacked. He's crazy, he's out of his mind, and his theology and his politics are so far from ours, we want nothing to do with him. Okay? First of all, he healed someone even though it's a Sabbath. Direct violation of the law. 
So right off the bat, the religion, oh, sorry, that's what he blurted out. He healed someone, right, on the Sabbath, direct violation of law, so therefore right away they're like, all right, theologically, this guy's, this guy can't possibly be one of us, right? All right. Then he has criticized their etiquette where the important people get the seats of honor. He's criticized that. He further picks up the classic parabolic themes of last, least, and dead as being the real great first alive. And he has scandalized them all. Oh, there's the, there's the parabolic themes of last, least, and, and, and dead. And he scandalized them all by telling them to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind to their dinner parties. Now, this is very important when we read the Gospels. You can't read this poor, crippled, lame, and blind. And this comes up a lot. Jesus is always talking about these people. When we read this, don't allow yourself, don't allow ourselves to take on that, that, uh, that mode of thinking where, oh, why would they exclude the poor, the lame? Don't, don't think of it that way. What this means in that language at that time, according to their scriptures, sinners. You have to understand, we have to understand that if we're going to enter into these stories. When we approach the, this language in the Gospels, we're talking about sinners, the unclean. This is according to Scripture. These aren't because these people are jerks and mean. They're being faithful to their theology. Okay? They're not going to have dinner with sinners. They're not going to associate with them. That's what those people were to them. It's in the Scripture. Go to Leviticus. These people are sinners. If you were lame, if you were blind, if you were poor, it's because you're a sinner. You have to understand this. If this is going, to, if Scripture is going to mean anything to us, don't go backwards and say, "Oh, they're just stupid and they didn't know." No, no, no. They were following Scripture. So now, see, this is why the Gospels are hard to read for us. Because when we now read it properly that way, then we have to look at our own lives and say, oh, what sinners do we exclude from our communities and our lives? You see? See, this is how powerful Jesus is. But when we, when we don't want to go there, when we don't want to, to be like Jesus, it's so easy to use our scriptures to keep people out of our churches. Well, they're sinners. But God in the flesh said, no, invite them to your table. See how difficult Scripture is when we really are willing to say, God, just open it for us and, and, and just really challenge us. Don't use Scripture to support tiny little human doctrines. Let Scripture call us to bigger theology and bigger doctrines. What is happening in this house right now, this is the beginning of crucifying God. Please understand that. Jesus has said and done things that the religious elites are correct in saying he's wrong. According to their scriptures and their understanding of scriptures. And so started the process of crucifying Jesus Christ. We get challenged when we read scripture and say, oh, how many times do we crucify Christ because we don't like what it means for our lives if we're going to really listen to his truth. Right? And this is one of these parables. So, he's done all these things, he said all these things, but then he finally says something that sort of makes sense among all this crazy talk. He says, the resurrection of the righteous. And when he says the resurrection of the righteous, this guy blurts out his exclamation. Okay? 
this is such a this is almost like a comedic scene. If you think of whoever your favorite comedic movie maker is, this is a classic scene here because this guy is like many of us who we might not like the deeper truth of what the gospels are getting at, what Jesus is getting at, but we will run all day long with simple quotes that make us happy. All day. I call it soundbite Christianity or three inch by three inch Christianity. We hear one soundbite or we read one three inch by three inch tract and we've got our entire Christian theology figured out. And please don't bother me with the facts. Please don't bother me with the facts. I, was, I love to read blogs. I don't, Sam, I don't know if you sent this one to me. Anyway, I was reading this blog, right? And it was all about love your enemies, which is a direct quote from Jesus Christ, who I think as Christians we're supposed to believe is God, right? So here's God talking to us, love your enemies. And what I love best about blogs is when you get into the comment section. <laughs> so there's all these comments, and, and even those that sort of disagree with the main thrust of it are still acknowledging, but yes, absolutely, we're supposed to love our enemies. One comment. It's like five simple words. The Bible tells us to kill our enemies too. And he quotes an obscure Leviticus verse. And there you go. There it is. Soundbite Christianity. We can kill people because it says so in the Bible. I, okay? So, so we all struggle under this. So, this guy, here we go. Ready? He's sitting there going, this guy's out of his mind. He's nuts. I'm, there's no way I'm inviting the unclean to my table. There's not a chance. Ah, but I am totally with you on the whole banquet in heaven thing for us righteous folks. That's why he did what he did. Oh, there it is. Yes, I'm with you on that. Amen. Now we can break bread together. The us-them paradigm always fosters soundbite theology, doesn't it? Always. You say one thing to someone that makes them feel they're the us against the them. Oh, powerful. It's powerful theology. Fear theology is powerful. Fear, fear politics is powerful. But I don't believe Christianity is a fear-based religion because the God who could strike fear in anyone instead died for us. Wow. Which should strike absolute fear in us for what that absolutely means when we reject that, I think. But that's another story, and that's a different kind of fear. Now, here we go. Bailey helps us understand. Let's get into this. So Bailey helps us understand this little dialogue, what's going on. There is an expected response to this statement. Okay, When people say, Blesses everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. At that time and place, there would have been an expected response. And that response would have been something like, Oh, that we may be among the righteous, sitting with the Messiah and his people. See, joining in the us-them thing. That would have been the expected response. This guy is issuing a provocative statement meant to solicit an expected response. The guy played the us-them card, and Jesus was expected to join him. But Jesus gave anything but an expected response. He broke into this parable that we're going to dive into. Crazy. See, this is what Jesus always did. And one of my favorite times when he doesn't give an expected response is from a few chapters earlier in Luke 11. So Jesus is saying these things, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast that which you nursed. And he said, Yeah, no. 
Actually not at all. He would not give any response to that, that she was looking for. Not at all. Jesus is not fooled by surface piety, nor can he be trapped by human doctrines. And this is where the rubber meets the road in Christianity. We can fool each other all day long. And we can demand others fool us all day long. We can demand it. That's the worst. When church is at its ugliest, it's demanding you lie to each other. That, that's one of, one, of, one, of the, uh, one of the genesis of Cana was trying to provide a church, because I love church, but doesn't demand you lie to me. And don't demand that I lie to you. And I, I don't. Most of you that know me well know what a sinner I am. And I don't demand you lie to me. I don't want you to come here and pretend you're not a sinner. Just be yourself. That's who God died for. That beautiful song, Dave Saints, Tasting Forgiveness. When I say I've got it all figured out, I'm lying. Jesus isn't fooled by our surface piety, and he's not limited by our doctrines. Let it be bigger and bigger. So, now, to really understand this, back to this give and take, to really understand this, we need some background information. Shay, I was thinking about you all week. Shay always loves the historical teachings that I do. You're going to love this, I think. So, this guy, like most of us, is, as Douglas says, laboring within the limitations of his tradition. Both the resurrection of the righteous and eating bread in the kingdom are references to the great banquet at the end of history that God will throw. This was known as the Messianic Banquet and had its origins and initial understanding in Isaiah. Here is the vision the prophet Isaiah was given that started this whole Messianic Banquet thing. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trust in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. This is the singular hope we all have. No matter how dark our lives get, we will be with God. And death is not the end. Beautiful, beautiful vision. Amazing vision. <sighs> However, by the time Jesus came, 700 years later, this vision was understood decidedly very differently. Okay? So, here's the thing. Just so we understand, I'm, I'm about to quote a source. I want to understand where that source came from. The Israelites were taken into exile in Babylon during the 6th century B.C. By the time their descendants returned, they had adopted Aramaic as their spoken language. Okay? So they had lost their original language. So they come back, they have a new language. So what had to happen as the centuries passed, the Hebrew scriptures were orally translated into Aramaic, so when the people went to church, they could understand what was being read. They had lost the ability to hear their scriptures in the original language. So they were, they were translated orally into Aramaic and spoken. By the time of Christ, that oral translation had been finally written down, and that was called the Targum. The Targum was like an expanded text, however which extra words are added 
to help explain what's going on. So here's an example of we have expanded text in Christianity. Here is John 3, 14 through 16 in the NIV on the left, just straight up, okay? And that's one of the classic translations that is an expanded text on the right. Same, same thing. But see, lifted up the servant in the desert on a pole. So much so does it. So they help you understand that's what an expanded text means. Okay. Here is the same Isaiah passage from the Targum with expanded understanding. Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples in this mountain a meal, and although they supposed it is an honor, it will be a shame for them, and great plagues, plagues from which they will be unable to escape, plagues whereby they will come to their end. That's a tad different, I think, than the vision Isaiah was given. Gets better. There was a 2nd century BC document known as the Book of Enoch. This book, too, speaks of the great banquet and does say that Gentiles will be included, but then goes on to say this. But the angel of death will be present and will use his sword to destroy those Gentiles. The banquet hall will run with blood and the believers will be obliged to wade through the gore to reach the banquet hall where they sit down with the Messiah. And I know this sounds funny, but again, let tradition, let history, let scripture speak to us. Do you know how many Christian postings, t-shirts, bumper stickers I see where Jesus is on a white horse with an AK-47? Oh, well, David, that's our scripture. John says that in the book of Revelation. He does? That's how the early church fathers understood John's vision of Revelation? That Jesus is coming with an AK-47 to kill all of them? Oh, I, I know it's a challenging vision, but... So, let's see. The only blood I've ever heard God shedding is His own. I wonder if that's what all the blood and gore and Revelation is all about. I don't know. And finally, there's another piece of writing. This came out of the Qumran community, probably the Essenes. They were very pious Jews. This is called the Messianic Rule, this writing, and it too discussed the great banquet. It is adamant that Gentiles will not be in attendance, nor anyone who is, direct quote from the Messianic Rule, smitten in his flesh, or paralyzed in his feet, or hands, or lame, or blind, or deaf, or dumb, or smitten in his flesh with a visible blemish. Oh, wait a second. Those are the exact people Jesus told them to invite to the bank. The sinners. So, their understanding with their revisionist history over 700 years had radically changed God's message. So when God shows up and starts repeating the message, it goes against everything they believe about God. Yet, they had much tradition and even scriptural support for this evolved and strange twisting of the original teaching. Into this exclusive and preferential understanding of God that Jesus comes, and he is asked to affirm their understanding of who is in and who is out. He is asked to affirm their understanding of what makes one in and what makes one out. And he is asked ultimately to affirm their understanding of who God loves and who God does not love. But Jesus 
won't affirm anything. He tells a decidedly different story. He challenges everything. And he paints a picture of God and his kingdom that to them was at best crazy and at worst blasphemous. And as we dive into this parable over the next two weeks, and we're honest with ourselves, we too will think that my understanding of it is dangerous and blasphemous. And yet it's Jesus' parable. It's his parable. That he told the people who believe the sick and the lame and the poor and the blind and the sinners should not be at their table. And he told them to invite them. This is a powerful parable about God. A God I believe who is big enough to answer the cry, save us, when the rivers run dry. Because if he's not that big, then what's the point? Why worship him? So here's a challenge. <coughs> read the parable this week. More than once. Read it. And while we read it, I want us to ask these questions. For let's face it, 2,000 years after Jesus, we've had quite a bit of our own revisionist history. And in fact, we're now at a place where we need revisionist history again, which isn't really revisionist, but brings us back to what Jesus was trying to really get at. The preferential, exclusive understanding of God remains very much alive in Christianity today, very much alive in our culture today. And sadly, So here's the question. As we read this parable together this week, and we're going to talk about it for the next two weeks, in what ways might we have come to far different conclusions to God's story than what was originally intended? In what ways have we reduced the great vision of Isaiah's where God welcomes all to his banquet to a private party where only an elect and elite few are welcomed? Who have we decided is in and who is out? And what have we determined makes one in or out? <laughs> Finally, the biggest question of all to ask ourselves as we read this parable together, whom do we think God loves or does not love? They seem like simple questions, but here's the thing. The answers to those questions ultimately define our understanding of God. And as we often suggest here at Cana, if our understanding of God does not look a lot like Jesus Christ, perhaps it looks a lot like us. And the one thing I'm sure of after 52 years of being a human, I'm tired of worshiping humanity. I want a God who is not like us. And the God who dies for his enemies that's not like us at all. Thanks be to God.